I'm excited to be starting a new sermon series here this morning. And if you look at your bulletin, you'll see on the front cover some new artwork and a new title called On Target Discipleship. What are you aiming at? And I know uh, you might not think about your life uh, like this in normal, kind of everyday parlance. But right now, at the end of this week that has just preceded, your life has been aimed at something. Now, your life might this past week only have been aimed at your employment and your paycheck. Or it may have been aimed at problems that you're dealing with in your family. But your life was aimed at something. And one of the things that we have talked about when we talk about the whole process of building strong families is this. Okay? Um, You go through life, all your life, especially when you're growing up, up through 12th grade, your entire worth to the public school system is um, summarized in a letter grade. For some of us, that was a really good thing. For others of us, no. No. And so the question that we're trying to ask when we talk about <clears throat> kind of on-target discipleship and what are you aiming at is if you got a report card for your faith, how would you do? Now, don't raise your hand, but I imagine just given the law of averages, we'd have a couple people that wouldn't flunk out. We just statistically, we got to have a couple people that would be taking remedial classes because something didn't take. On a bell curve distribution, most of us would be a C. Average. You happy with that? Truth is, you have an opportunity every day, but especially right now, to consider just for a moment what your life is aimed at. We've come through a series of of questions when we were going through our vision casting process with our vision team of saying, all right, how do we know if we're actually building strong families? That sounds great. How do we know? How are we going to measure that? And that's really kind of led us to a series of questions that really are questions about what kind of disciples are we being? If the end game is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, how do we know mission accomplished? How do we know that our discipleship at the beginning of 2016 is any different than we were last year? And one of the questions, this series is going to explore a number of just very discipleship-oriented questions. And the first question that we're going to look at over two weeks is this, have you checked in with God? Have you checked in with God? Now, in, in older days, olden days, we would refer to this as your quiet time or your devotions. But have you checked in with God? I think there is a a mistake that we make that we think that living for God in our day and age is so much more difficult than it was for our grandparents. You know, we we see sin on the increase. We see rebellion celebrated. Rebellion is a special interest group, you know. Um, And and so it it, it is. Take your pick, whatever you want it to be. And so we think that, man, living for God, discipleship, is so much more difficult today than it was for previous generations. And you know, that's not true. Now, we can sin in much more creative ways, in ways that are much more convenient. Uh, the internet is a wonderful avenue of research and wonder and wisdom. But boy, it is a tool that can be used for destruction as well. And so now you can sin in ways that you had to leave your house before to. Now, in the privacy of your own home, you welcome it right in by paying whatever your monthly fee is for your internet service. You see, temptation has taken different forms, but human nature has not changed at all. Everything that we face is some shade of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. 
Things have not changed as much as we happen to think that they have. Um, And so what do we do in the midst of a very dark and rebellious culture? How does the Bible encourage us in our discipleship? Well, I think today we will see an answer to that in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I think Paul addresses this very issue. Despite the hostility of the culture around us, discipleship is not any more difficult. It just does require intentional focus and a little bit of hard work. So how do we measure it? Well, in 2 Timothy 3, I'll be reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. That's page 843 in the Pew Bible in front of you, and the scripture will be on the screen. Uh, To give a little bit of context for this, Paul is in prison, and he is awaiting execution. You see, we don't, we don't tend to think of our pastors going to jail for their faith, but that happened to Paul multiple occasions. And so this is, uh, your Bible doesn't ha- <clears throat> have an Acts chapter 32, but if there was, this is it. After Acts 28, Paul is in prison, but he gets released, and we know he does additional ministry. At some point, not related in Scripture, he gets arrested again, and this time it's kaput for Paul. He gets killed. And so while he is waiting in prison, he is writing a series of letters uh, to his young protege, Timothy, Uh, to encourage him to continue on in the ministry. And so uh, before we get to our focus passage, which will be chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, I want you to hear what the Bible says in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, of the circumstances that Timothy was facing. Paul says this, But know this, difficult times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, kiddos, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness but denying its power. That doesn't sound like 2,000 years ago. That sounds like the Galleria Mall. That sounds like Walmart on Christmas Eve. That sounds like Today, it sounds like the six o'clock news. And so Paul is telling Timothy, listen, friend, it's terrible circumstances. There's sin all around us. There is rebellion that is being exalted. You're in desperate times. But he gives Timothy a very specific encouragement that we'll see in verses 10 through 17. And, And that is almost that the darker and more ungodly our culture grows, the more important it is for you to spend time in the Word. That's the whole sermon right there, is that we have to take responsibility not for um, just filling up at the gas station once a week. That's a terrible analogy for feeding yourself from the Word. You know, I know some of you get together with your family on Sunday afternoon, and you all go to Grandma's house, and she cooks a big old spread. It's good, and I better stop talking about food because I'm just getting started preaching. Um, I don't need to get you all going. Um, I want you to do something for me. I want you to eat so much today that this is the only meal that you eat all week. You are not allowed to eat till next Sunday after church. Anybody think they could do it? There's a little bullet, a little tear-off, a little section on the front there. If you're willing to take that challenge, put your name on it, put it put in the plate. We'd like to see how you can do it. But that's the way that we approach feeding ourselves spiritually. I don't need to be in the Word. That's what church is for. So I'll show up for church once a week. I'll get a big, fat Thanksgiving meal, and then I'm not going to eat till next week. Listen, if you can't do that physically, it doesn't make any sense for you to do that spiritually. And so he's going to give Timothy explicit encouragement about spending time in the Word. And so let's look at our passage, uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 10 through 12, to get a couple of his 
general comments here. He begins in verse uh, 10 and 11, saying, in contrast to everything that we just talked about in verses 1 through 5, the difficulty and the darkness of the last days. Verse 10, but you, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love and endurance, and you have, along with me, observed the persecutions and sufferings that I have been through. He's showing a contrast between the way of the world and the way of Timothy. And he's saying, Timothy, you have, um, you have followed my teachings and you have observed my sufferings for the gospel. Look at verse 12. Paul says something emphatic that I think we often forget. We think that God's whole purpose in life is to give us our best life now. Well, Joel, let me introduce you to 2 Timothy 3.12 because I don't think you've read that one before. In fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I didn't say it. Paul did. As a matter of fact, Jesus says the same thing, that people who follow him will be persecuted. Now, don't be persecuted because you're a jerk or because you're weird. Be persecuted because you're godly. And it's, it's possible for godly people to be just weird. He's not saying be weird. This is no endorsement of being weird or being, like, just too strong about stuff. He, he's talking about being persecuted for being godly. <clears throat> and so here's the thing that's really crazy. I don't know if you really get this or not. Because I, I don't. I, I don't go through life assuming that the world's not going to like me. But Paul makes it emphatically clear that the world's reward for our godliness will be persecution. Let me ask you a question. What in the world should you be doing as a parent if First uh, Timothy 3.12 is true? How are you raising kids that are going to be able to, 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 be able to face that where a culture is increasingly turning its back on God? Parents, listen, I think if you could tattoo this on the inside of your eyelids, it'd be a good thing for you. Are you praying for your kid to be ready to stand up for persecution? Because it's not going to get any easier. But after these remarks, saying, Timothy, you're not like the world. You followed my example. You followed my gospel. Hey, Timothy, I want you to, be, I want you to know if you're going to be godly, you're going to be persecuted. He makes four very important points. And you'll see kind of in your outline, we've got a lot of ground that we're going to cover. So we're going we're to look at the scripture <clears throat> and we're going to see what it has to say. And then uh, most of our time this morning is going to be making kind of very specific um, application. But the very first point that, that uh, Paul makes is he tells Timothy to stand upon uh, his family tradition of the scriptures. He says, Timothy, stand firmly upon your family's tradition of the scriptures. Look at verse 14 and 15. Despite the persecution of the ungodly, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures. It's an amazing thing for him to say. And it appears at first blush that Paul is talking about himself. He's saying, all right, Timothy, I've just said you followed my teachings. You've seen my persecutions. You've seen my endurance. So continue in what you have learned from me. That's not the point at all. You see, Paul is a Johnny-come-lately in Timothy's life. And when he says, you know who you have learned from, the who is plural. Here's one of the things that we know. If we flip back to chapter 1, verse 5, when Paul is first introducing the letter to 2 Timothy, he says this, he says, I, uh, I recall clearly the sincere faith that lived in your grandmother, Lois, and then in your mother, Eunice, and I am convinced that it is in you as well. Now, was Paul one of Timothy's teachers? Absolutely. But Paul's saying, go back 
way beyond before I taught you to the people who taught you. Clearly a reference to his mother and to his grandmother. I love that. He's saying, Timothy, you've, you've got a precious inheritance that has been handed down from generation to generation to generation. My question to you would be this. As we seek as a church to build strong families, would it be considered a compliment or a curse for your kids to walk in your path of discipleship? If your kid grew up and volunteered at the church as much as you did, would that be an A effort or a C effort? If your kid read the Bible as much as you did, would that be an A effort or a C effort? If he worshipped or she worshipped like you did, would that be an A effort or a C effort? What kind of example are you setting? If, if this point, stand on your family tradition of the scriptures is important, what tradition are you handing down? How many times have your kids, not for show, because the Bible says we don't do it for show. The Bible says our example is really important, okay? How many times have your kids caught you reading the Bible? If statistics are true, it's probably zero. How many times do you pray besides rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub? Have they ever actually heard you pray imploring for God to save someone? And not just doing an organ recital, please help grandma's gout and Uncle Charlie's ankles and, you know, aunt so-and-so with whatever her issue is, but praying for things that are spiritual. Would it be a compliment or a curse for your kids to follow in your path of discipleship? Number two, he says, remember that the scripture leads to salvation. He says, Timothy, you have been taught, you, you have this wonderful family tradition, and from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now listen, when Paul was writing to Timothy, um, there were a couple letters of Paul that were circulating around that Peter obviously refers to as scripture. And there were some statements that Jesus had made that were starting to circulate, but there was no New Testament that was written. When he says, Timothy, you know the sacred scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus, what's he referring to? The Old Testament. And don't we just habitually think of the Old Testament as a dry and dusty book that has no relevance to today? And yet Paul is saying, Timothy, you have grown up knowing the Old Testament scriptures, and those alone, without the New Testament, are enough to give you the wisdom that will lead you to salvation in Christ. If you don't see Jesus in the Old Testament, it's because you're not looking. He's all over the place. And he says that it is the scriptures that make you wise to salvation. Let me ask you this question. This is a little bit of a trick question. It's kind of got some, some depth to it. What would, you, what would you know about Jesus apart from the Bible? Well, you know, Time Magazine every Easter, they're quoting the Bible. What would you know about Jesus apart from the scriptures? Nothing. That's really important for you to understand. Because there's a movement afoot that seeks to divorce, and I'll use that word intentionally, seeks to divorce Jesus' Jesus's person from Jesus' words, Jesus' book. And you tell me, oh yeah, I, you know, I, I had an experience with Jesus, chapter and verse, friend. Who am I going to trust? What, what are you going to trust? Are you going to trust somebody's Looney Tune experience? Are you going to trust what God's word says? Listen, as much as I love you and respect you, I'm going with the Bible over your experience a hundred out of a hundred times. And you should too. Because if we want to have an experience with Jesus, Jesus tells us how to have an experience with him. We get to know him through his word. And so we are reminded 
that one of the reasons we spend time in the Word is because we're saved. Because God has led us to have life in His name. And so we are to pass on this family tradition of the Scriptures and to remember that without the Scripture, none of us would trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. Number three, he tells us that Scripture is useful because it is inspired by God. Listen to verse 16. He says this, All Scripture... It's important, the word order is important. He says, all, all, Scripture. Some people have twisted this verse around and said, all, all Scripture that is inspired. That's not what it says. It doesn't say that our Bible's like Swiss cheese. It's got holes in it, and some parts are inspired and some parts aren't. It says, all Scripture is inspired by God. Now, when we use this word inspired, we use it in a couple different ways. You know, <clears throat> we talk about, you know, a documentary that we watch, some guy that survived the Holocaust, and we go, wow, what an inspiring story. Or we see an artist who uh, works their craft, whether it's music or it's art, and we go, wow, that was really inspiring. Um, <clears throat> we're not talking about an experience that is kind of awe-producing. When, when the Bible uses the word inspiration, it's a very specific word. It is the word that in Greek, and I, I tell, I'll tell you this because You'll, you'll understand this. The word for inspiration is theonoustos, which is a compound word combining the word theo, God, and noustos, which is the word for wind or breath. So when the Bible claims for itself that it is inspired by God, it is literally that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. And so here's the thing that's really crazy. If you are not a believer today, or you're someone that maybe is kind of a cultured critic of the church and you're too smart to believe all that stuff that the bible says listen let me make it very clear where we stand on the scriptures we believe in a way that is completely mysterious to us that god used the personality the culture the language and the learning of individual human authors uh, authors to include exactly what he wanted to be included in the scriptures he didn't turn people into robots they weren't, you know, amanuenses, you know, dictating. You know, it wasn't like they went into some kind of trance and, you know, they weren't in control of themselves. No, Paul writes very differently than Peter. And John writes very differently. God used who they were to record perfectly what he wanted to be in the Scripture. So do we believe every word in the Bible? Yep, every single one. We believe Jonah got swallowed by a big fish. We believe Jesus got up from the grave. We believe Elijah called down fire from heaven. We believe it all. Not because John was a great writer and he deserves, you know, a Pulitzer Prize. No, because the scripture claims that it is breathed out by God. God is the one that gave the scriptures. Now, how do we understand how God superintends this whole process that whoever's writing can be them, but yet God, I don't know. How do you explain that Jesus is fully God and fully man? How do you explain that um, God is Father, Son, and Spirit? How do you explain any of this stuff? We believe it, and we think that there's good evidence. And the truth is, if you pay really close attention to your scriptures, if you have a study Bible, you'll see some footnotes that'll tell you. You know, hey, we can do some research now. Uh, when the King James Version was, was produced, there were only three manuscripts that we had of any New Testament scriptures. Three. There are over 8,000 that we have today. And you know what happens sometimes? When we talk about the inspiration of scriptures, we believe that the original copy was completely without error. So there's a process called text criticism where we've got 8,000 copies of Scripture. And what happens is 
you know, we'll take the Ed LaRock family of translations and then the Troy Reeves family of transitions and then the Jerry Wary's translation of scriptures and then the, the David Bennett. And what we'll see is if we go back far enough, they all agree. But then maybe 300 AD, we find out that someone after Ed in copying, trying to faithfully copy, there's, there's something in there that's not right. You know, they turned an A into a the. And so you'll see footnotes in your scripture that say, you know what, not every manuscript says it this way. You know what that helps us to do? It helps us to compare all the manuscript evidence that we have, and instead of it casting doubt upon the scripture, it helps us know with greater certainty what is absolutely true in the scriptures. So for example, if you look at Mark chapter 16, uh, the ending of Mark chapter 16, it may be in your Bible, it's not scriptural. Because most manuscripts, most manuscript evidence doesn't have it. And so because some manuscript evidence does, the publisher decided to put it all in with a little footnote to say the vast majority of resources don't have this about handling snakes and doing all this weird stuff. So it's not scripture. If we were preaching through the gospel of Mark, we would end a week sooner because we would not, I would not preach on something that I really don't believe based upon manuscript evidence and research is that. But this whole idea of God's inspiration makes it really certain for us that this is not the original copy. This is probably one of millions that has been produced. But because we have the opportunity to research and we, because we believe that God's process of inspiring the scripture is, is something that we, we hold dear, we know that we hold God's word in our hands, that we have written down exactly what God wanted to be recorded for our benefit, for our good and for our salvation. And this drives us to our fourth and final point in our explanation of the scriptures. Not only should we celebrate and stand upon a family tradition of the scriptures, not only should we remember that scripture leads to salvation, that scripture is inspired by God, but we are to follow scripture as it trains us toward sanctification. It says that all scripture in verse 16 is inspired by God. Look what it says. And it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There are two things that Scripture is really concerned to um, help us with. Some of it is positive and some of it is negative. It says four things. It's good for teaching, it's good for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. When it talks about... um, teach, When it talks about those four things, it's very concerned about what we know and what we do with what we know. And then it's also very concerned for how we get off the right track. So there's an illustration here that I think is very helpful. And you can think about this kind of like an interstate with an exit ramp and an on-ramp, okay? Not a perfect analogy, but just kind of play with that because if this was a interstate traffic pattern, there would be lots of accidents, okay? So we'll start up here at the top right. And, and, And essentially what you've got is that you've got that the Bible is good for teaching. It shows you the path that you're supposed to walk on. And if you stay on that path, if you, if you are believing the right things and doing the right things and walking on that path, what happens? You go straight ahead and you get trained in righteousness. You, you grow in Christian maturity and you are on the right track. But what happens is there comes a, jun- a juncture in the road where you make a choice about going straight and doing what God wants you to or getting off track. And what the Bible calls that is reproof. What reproof does is reproof does the very hard and negative work of showing you how you've gotten off track. So you know why people don't read the Bible? Makes me feel guilty. To which we say, praise God. Praise God. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to bring conviction. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that 
Sin will either keep you from this word or this word will keep you from sin. I, I, it's not original with me. He, he's much smarter than I am to come up with something like that. And so I think that this diagram is helpful. Not only does God's word do the negative work of showing us how we've gotten off the path, then it gives us correction, the positive word of how to get right back on the path and then to go straight on in training in righteousness. So I think that this illustration is very helpful. Now here's, here's something that I think we have to realize, and it's important for us to do this early in the year. Y- y'all are making resolutions and trying to think through this. We've got a really cool tool that's going to come up, uh, uh, come out for you in the next couple of weeks where when we talk about a spiritual health report card, you're going to get a chance to do one. We're going to ask you a series of 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 questions. And we're going to ask you as honest as possible. It's going to be anonymous. How are you doing? How consistently do you spend time in God's Word? Or the only time you spend time in God's Word is at church or in Sunday school. If that's the case, that's, that's, that's not a real high grade, Okay. How intentional are you about speaking the gospel to people who are not believers? You know, what is your practice of prayer like? And what we want to do is we want to we survey our entire church anonymously, and we want to figure out what, what do we do well as a church? Man, we fellowship awesome, but we don't spend time in the Word at all. I don't know what the result is going to be. There's going to be something that I think will be very helpful for us. And so here's one of the things I think to, to remember. We, a lot of times I think there's a lot, a lot of guilt, and not good guilt, that we kind of put on people, you know, like, you know, <laughs> a Bible verse a day keeps the devil away, you know, and we try to make people feel bad, and we come up with all this kind of cheesy stuff. Listen, the Bible says, God says that for the Bible to be a normal and regular part of your life is a really good thing. Okay, did you know that? The Bible to be a regular part of your life is a really good thing. So I'm going to run through these eight verses here really quickly for you to hear about the blessing of the scriptures. Consider, let's zoom out here for a second. Timothy's in a godless situation, and he is being encouraged to live for God. And what does Paul say? He says, you know what? Your mom and your grandma raised you to believe the word. Hey, you know what? The word led you to salvation in Christ. Hey, you know what? The word is inspired by God. The word is good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. He says, Timothy, if there is one thing you need to do in a godless culture, it's that you need to spend time in the Word. So here's the question for you before we look at these blessings. If your godliness, if we just took this one subsection and said your godliness was measured by your time in the Word, be happy with your score. If your godliness was measured by your time in the word, how healthy would you be? So listen to these scriptures. Number one, Proverbs 13, 13 says, scripture being a part of your life will reward you. It says this, the one who has contempt for instruction, he'll pay the penalty. But the one who respects a command, he'll be rewarded. Listen, this is a proverb. It's true in your work life. If you uh, if you have contempt for the instruction that you get from your employer, you're, you're, it's not going to be good for you. But if you listen to the command, you'll be rewarded. You do the right thing. It's the same thing for the Bible. If we disregard the Bible, we can't ex- expect reward or good. But if we listen, the Bible says it will reward us. Number two, Proverbs 16.20 says that the Bible will produce blessings in our life. It says the one who understands a matter finds success, and the one who trusts in the Lord will be happy. 
Listen, I'm almost scared to ask the question, how many of you want success and happiness? The Bible says you'll find it in the Word. And if you're looking for a happiness and a success that isn't found in the Word, then you're looking for the wrong kind of fulfillment. But the Bible will reward and bless the people who heed its message. Proverbs 19, 16 says that the Scriptures will give you life. The one who keeps commands preserves himself, but the one who disregards his ways will die. That's a truth of God's word. Proverbs 30, verse 5, says that God's word will protect you. Every word of God is pure, and he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Man, if you've had a rough week, what an awesome thing to think that the God of the universe says that listening to his word, he will be a shield for you. Number five, Psalm 119.11 says that the Bible will keep you from sin. It says this, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. You know what's crazy? You may face a challenge that you are unprepared for, and then all of a sudden God brings a scripture to mind that you have not thought of in 10 years. How does he do that? Because you've hidden God's word in your heart. Maybe you've hidden it so good you forgot you had it. But the Spirit, because it's there, brings it out in your time of need, and He uses God's word to keep you from sin. Psalm 119, 105, number six, it promises to guide you. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light to my path. Number seven, John 8, 31 and 32 says that God's word will free you. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you will really you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There is an unencumbrance that comes from knowing that you are in a right relationship with God and listening to His Word. Colossians 3.16, number 8, says that God's Word will enrich you. Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly within you or among you. Now, we didn't even hit your favorite Bible verse about the Bible. I don't know what it is. But I guarantee you, we could make this list extend to a hundred items of what are the blessings, what are the rewards, what are the benefits of being in God's word. This is just, this is just an appetizer. This is just a brief little uh, collage of scriptures that say reward, blessing, life, protection, uh, keeping you from sin, guidance, freedom, and enriching. Who doesn't want this? You do want this. Are you willing to do the work to have it? I want to I conclude with a kind of an extended illustration, okay? All right, Ansley. <clears throat> if I, uh, I, I'm going to do a little tug of war with you, okay? I'm going to hold this Bible as hard as I can. You think you can pull it out of my hands? Hmm? Let me see. Oh, she took my Bible. You're not supposed to do that to a preacher. Troy, what are you doing here? Now, y'all saw how I was holding it, kind of open-handed here. Let's try this again. I ate my Wheaties and I slept at a Holiday Inn last night. Now I want you to try to take my Bible away from me. You trying yet? Are you going to try? Man, come on, girl. What's the matter? What's the matter? I'm going to pull you up on the stage with me. Oh. What, was, what was the difference? You know what the difference was? My thumb. Y'all over here couldn't see that. The difference was my thumb, okay? Take your Bible, all right? Put in your hand. Now listen, some of you wouldn't be able to walk from the back of the church to the front here without dropping your Bible. Okay? 
You get, it's a balancing act. And you say, oh yeah, I got a good grip on God's word. You put your thumb in that? Well, you don't think about your thumb as a really significant part of your body, but you put your thumb on it, man, I got a grip on it. Get, get it now, mine. So using your hand is an illustration. Five fingers. I want to give you five ways that you can get a grip on God's word. And this is not about academics. This is not about being a Bible scholar. This is about very practically allowing the benefits of God's word to take root in your life. And so there are five ways that I think you have got to be serious. If you want God's word in your life and you want to check in with God by spending time in his word, there are five things that you need to do. Number one is hear, H-E-A-R. Just out of curiosity, this is a raise your hand question. How many of you have read through the entire Bible? Okay, 15, 20. Now, you know why the rest of you haven't? It takes too long, right? You know how long it takes you to read through the Bible cover to cover? 70 hours. You know how many days that is? Not even three days. So, here's the thing. What if we said tonight we're gonna we're gonna gather at five o'clock, and we're not gonna leave until we've and we're, you know uh, she's gonna pick up where I left off, and then he's gonna read, and then he's gonna read every just read a chapter, and we're just gonna cycle through it. It take us by Wednesday we'd be done, and we'd have read through the entire Bible. You think that'd be a good way to spend three days? It'd be the first time most of our congregation has ever read through the entire Bible. So saying that the Bible takes too long for you to read through it's a lie. Now you you maybe didn't know it was a lie because. It is a big book, and it's not all easy reading. But if you bought the Bible on tape or on CD in 70 hours, you could listen to the entire thing. I love it because I use my commute. If I'm heading up to Charlotte, I've got the daily audio Bible. Whatever my Bible reading plan is, I can boop, play it on, and it comes through my car stereo speakers. So if I don't have time to read it, I have time to hear it. Here's the challenge. You guys have so many ways that you have the chance to hear God's word. You go home, you could probably find it on 20 different television channels on your 5,000 channels that you get. You could go to the internet, you could download a podcast, you could buy CDs, you could buy DVDs, you could download an app. And it almost seems like the more we appreciate God's word, the less we talk about it. I, I had a friend who, you know, he, he kind of did the old-timey thing. He'd stand in the back, and everyone, when they go out the door, you know what you say to a preacher when you go out the door? I'll preach that was great today. He heard it every Sunday from almost every person. So he decided, I'm going I'm to quiz people. So, preacher, that was great. Well, which point did you like the best? Jesus? Fail. Here's what, ha- here's what happens. You get an attaboy, or you get a man that was really great, and it's almost like the better church is, the less we talk about it. It's no wonder our churches are ineffective at evangelism. If we can't talk about the good news of the gospel and what we're getting out of God's word with our faith family, how in the world are we going to talk to our unbelieving friends and neighbors about the gospel if we can't talk about it? If you want God's word to really make an impact in your life, then do something with what you hear. And come to the service expecting God to say something to you out of his word and with the commitment to do something with it. So that means when you sit down for dinner or when you go out to lunch or whenever you do something, you come with the expectation and you say, man, this was really challenging to me. Man, I think this is something I might need to, I need to change. Uh, this is something that really, and it's something to me. I, I don't understand. Can you explain what this is a little bit 
more. We have a mutual responsibility as the family of God to encourage and build one another up. I asked Kylie on the way to church this morning. I said, Kylie, if mom and dad didn't make you come to church, would you still come? She said, absolutely. I love to be with God's people. I love to hear about God. And I said, are you coming for your own benefit or are you coming for other people? Are you coming to encourage other people or are you coming just to get encouraged yourself? And man, I think that that's a question big kids need to ask themselves too. I come to get what I want out of it, but I don't come with the expectation that God's got someone in this room for me to encourage, for me to build up. And you know the best way that you can encourage and build someone up? It's not through the most creative or funny thing that you can think of. It's through what God has already said through his word. That we have a responsibility to build one another up. You see, the Bible says that the church is supposed to be a family, not an audience. We're supposed to engage with one another, not just sit in pews facing forward listening. Listening. <clears throat> the Bible indicates that gossip is always bad unless you're going to gossip about the gospel. If you can talk about something, talk about something that really matters. And so hearing is the pinky finger of our family. It's the easiest, the simplest, the lowest common denominator of getting a grasp of God's word. They get a little harder, they get a little more advanced as you go on. You move from hearing to reading. Reading takes a little more time than hearing does. Um, and I ask the question again. What does your family do to read the Bible? What do your kids see are holy habits in your life when it comes to uh, feeding upon the scriptures? So hearing and reading. Number three, study. What's the difference between reading the scripture and studying the scripture? Pen and paper. It's the only difference. You're thinking a little bit and you're recording your thoughts. The difference between reading and studying is maybe you have a commentary, you have a lesson guide, you have something else that's uh, augmenting your personal reading. Number four is memorizing. And what's the thumb? What's that thing that just seals the deal? Meditating. And this is not some, you know, yoga, you know, empty your mind. No, this is fill your mind up with God's word. Here's the thing. We have believers all around the world that today when they gather, someone will come in and collect all their Bibles and say that it's not legal for them to own a copy of the Scriptures anymore. And for most churches in America, if that ever happens, they'll just have to shut their doors because Americans have memorized so little of God's Word that they don't have the opportunity to meditate on it because they can't remember it. Oh, well, if the Bible's gone, then I guess our church is too. Here's the thing these believers in foreign countries treasure the word so much that they commit vast portions of it to memory. So when the bad guys come and they take their Bibles away, they still have church and they can still preach because he's got 2 Timothy 3 memorized and he can call it to mind. He can use it. I love, I love this um, analogy and I'll, I'll close with that. You might want the scripture reference. Deuteronomy 32 Verse 46 and 47. Uh, Moses is passing off the scene and he's handing things off to his successor, Joshua. And as Moses is preaching his last sermon, he is telling people, guys, listen, God has given us his word. He has issued us warning. And this is not an idle thing. This is, this is important. This word is not just words on a page. What Moses says, he says, these words are your life. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is beginning his ministry and he goes out into the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil. And the very first temptation after 40 days in the wilderness is to take a bunch of rocks and to turn them into bread. 
You remember what Jesus' response is? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus said his food, much more important than rocks turned to bread, his food was the word of God. So for Moses, the scriptures were life. For Jesus, the scriptures were food. If we're going to call ourselves the people of the book, how can they be any less than those two things to us? Multiple copies in your house. Every single one of them collecting dust. And it doesn't matter what kind of theology test you can pass about what you believe about the scriptures. At the end of the day, what's going to help you build a strong family, what's going to help you be a better disciple, is what you do with this book. Not just what you believe about this book. Prayers in place. God, you have done us a great service. You have given us a great gift. You have not left us in darkness. You have given us your word. Admittedly, some of it is harder to understand and harder to enjoy than other portions of it, but we believe that all of it is inspired by you and is profitable for us. And God, if we're honest, if you give us the ability to be just a tad bit introspective, we have taken your word for granted, all of us. I don't know a humble Christian who would not wish that they had read more, studied more, heard more, memorized more, meditated more. And yet, God, we get so blinded and so distracted by our responsibilities in the, wor- in the world that we give up on the word. And then we get our binge diet of the Bible. We come every Sunday and we get a Sunday school lesson and a sermon and maybe even a small group lesson and then we starve ourselves the rest of the week. And you tell us that it is important for us to be in your word. And as the world continues to grow in its ungodliness, the discipline of spending time in your word is even more important. And so God, my prayer is twofold this morning. Lord, many of the people here this morning are precious brothers and sisters, uh, loved dearly. God, there are many of them that have um, forsaken the discipline of spending time regularly and consistently in your word. I pray that you encourage them. God, there are some here today that go, why in the world would I want to read the Bible? All of this Christian stuff just doesn't make sense to me. God, I pray that you'll bring your conviction about in their life as well. That not only will they perhaps begin for the very first time the discipline and the joy of spending time in your word, but that they will come to understand and know in a very personal sense the author of that word. God, we believe that there are people here today that need to turn their life over to you just the way that Emily did. God was a part of her life, but not necessarily in control of her life. And God, if we want you to be in control of our life, we'll do what you say with your word. And so God, we pray that you help us to do the right thing, that you help us to go to the right source, that you help us to glorify you as disciples as we seek to be strong for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do you stand?